Part of my story is years ago, I was born into an incredible family. I wish I could take credit for it, but I didn't really do much. I just kind of showed up. I wasn't unexpected. They'd been waiting for nine months for me to get there, but uh, there wasn't really a lot I did. I just was there. And then even for the first, I don't know, year, two years, I didn't really carry my weight very well in the family either. I kind of just laid around. Uh, I couldn't eat by myself. Uh, I didn't carry very good conversation, just cried a lot. But my family accepted me. They brought me in. And our family continued to grow uh, older, and in the early 90s, we had four other people move into our home. I was about 12 years old at that time. I remember it was uh, a pretty incredible time. I remember them flying into the Omaha Epley Airport, and before that time, I'd only seen them once before. They got off the plane, they got into our car, and they moved into our house. The interesting thing was they didn't speak any English, and we didn't speak any Spanish. I take that back. Actually, my older brother had taken one year of high school Spanish, so he was fluent, of course, to translate for us. And so we had a lot of charades that year. Three girls and one boy, all a part of a family, now adopted into our family. I remember my parents had done all the legal work. They'd gone to Costa Rica, and they'd paid the fees, and they'd worked through that. And at some point, we all gathered together, now a family of eight, and headed to the courthouse. I don't remember a lot about that time, but what I do remember is at some point, the judge looked at these four incredible kids, and he asked them, do you want to be a part of this family? And each one of them said yes. Now, they hadn't done anything to join into that family. They were chosen, and they just accepted the opportunity to join into this family. My family didn't have any obstacle course set up that they had to go through in a certain time to get into the family. It just didn't happen. They didn't have a certain gluten-free diet that they had to maintain as they joined into our family. They didn't have to look a certain way. You didn't even have to maintain a certain GPA to stay in the family, which is good because I'd be out of the family probably if that were the case. Now imagine if somebody came up to my brothers and sisters later on, they said, hey, you know what? Every Friday night, our family, we have pizza. So if you don't have pizza as a family, you're probably not a part of that family. Or or somebody else came up and they said, hey, you know what? Our family, we don't eat meat. So if you eat meat, if you're not vegetarian, you're probably not a part of your family. What if, what if they came up to my brothers and sisters and they said, hey, you didn't really do anything to get in that family. You're not really a part of that family. Well, after their big brother would step in between and make sure they understood that they were fully a part of our family, legally, but much more than that in reality in every way, I would turn to them and I would remind them of this. There's nothing you could ever say or do or not say or not do that would make you any more or less a part of this family. That's a little bit of what we want to talk about this morning. We've been in Colossians. We're getting to the end now of chapter 2. And Paul is carrying on an argument that he's already started before. And when we get to the end of this chapter and get to chapter 3, it's going to take a pretty significant turn. Paul is going to go from this foundational level of who Christ is and things to watch out for to this really practical level of what we should do to walk in Christ. But before we get there, we can't skip this part. Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 16, I'm reading in the NASB, says this. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. All right, okay, before we go any farther into this, this isn't really language that we use a lot in our culture. So let's step back a few thousand years into the Old Testament culture. We know that as we step back in the Old Testament life, the children of Israel were different. They were in a different time, different place. And God had put them into a spot where he had called them out. They knew that they were in need of a rescuer. God had called them out to be a part of his family, set apart. Another way we could say that is holy. They were different. The reason he did this is, in essence, he wanted them to be a light, to show the other nations around them of who he was. And they could do that by the way that they lived. So the nations around them could take note. And one of the ways that he did that was he set up laws and systems for them to live by. And essentially, there were three different systems of laws that the children of Israel would follow. There were these ceremonial laws, and there were these civil laws, and then there were these moral laws. And the ceremonial laws is the first, first one. In Hebrew, the word that's referred to as the ceremonial laws actually means the customs of a nation. It's the way that nation would live and their culture that would surround them. It would have their feasts and the, and the sacrifices that would take place and what to wear and what to eat and what not to eat. And all of these had a specific purpose. The feasts were to help them remember of what God had done, to bring them back together, to remember the faithfulness of their God in all the ways that he had walked with them. The sacrifices were to remind them of their need for a rescuer. Also, at this time, to keep them in right standing with God. What to wear and what to eat and what they could not eat also had a reason for it too. Seems a little odd, but if we had time this morning, we would go back into Leviticus chapter 11. We would start to unpack this odd list of things they could eat and not eat. And we can't go through all of it, but let me give you a little summary of some of the things. So, for instance, as you start reading through in Leviticus chapter 11, You'll come across this, and it says, animals that have a split hoof and chew the cud, that's something you can eat. Okay, so a split hoof, chew the cud. So an animal like a cow, we could eat a cow. Got it, okay. Animals that chew the cud but don't have a split hoof, that you cannot eat. That'd be like an animal like a camel. Okay, I've never been tempted to eat a camel yet, I guess. I, oh, I'm good with this list, right? It would continue on. Animals that don't chew the cud but do have a split hoof, you can't eat. Don't chew the cud, but do have split animals like a pig. Oh, now we're talking bacon. This list is getting harder, right? It continues to go through fish and birds and all these things that you could eat and not eat. And the whole point of this was to lead them towards something. It was to have them have a daily reminder of God's holiness. That God was setting them apart and they were to live differently. And how more could you do that? But every day when you got dressed, there was a standard. In every meal that you entered, there was a standard. It reminded us that God had these certain laws, these standards, and it would help them to look different. They would stand out. I remember a while back when I went to India, we went to some of the remotest parts, and we were kind of traveling through these areas. And I don't know if you'd noticed this about me at all, but I stood out a little bit when I went into India. I didn't look the same. I didn't wear the same clothes. Even the food I brought made people really curious about what this is. Even dogs, as I walked by them, would be like, Ooh, like tilt their head. Like, 
This guy is not from around these parts. And it made them curious, lots of questions they would ask. The children of Israel were supposed to live different lives in a way that would intrigue the people around them. There's something different about these people. Their God, there's something different about this God. The second law was these judicial laws or these civil laws. And these sets of laws were things like you shouldn't kill or you shouldn't steal or if you borrow money, here's how you should pay it back. And if this happens, here's the penalty for it. There were ways to govern their nation. But the third set of laws were these moral laws. And these laws were timeless. They reflected much more of God's character, the essence of who God is. They often dealt with the why. So why should we not steal? Because God is a gift-giving God. Because God is a just God. Why should we not kill? Because God is a God that gives life. Right? These laws would give the why behind it. The moral laws often were too, they were repeated in the New Testament. So as we'd see these laws, they would kind of come through and you'd see them carry on into the New Testament. So as we look at this list of three laws, we realize the first two don't really apply to us today, right? The ceremonial laws. Why? Because it was fulfilled completely in Christ. He was our sacrifice. He lived that perfect life that fulfilled all of those laws that we kept screwing up, that we couldn't quite lead. We couldn't quite do it, right? Christ fulfilled that for us. The second law were these government system laws, these civil laws, right? And that was much different than the nation that we live in. They lived in a theocracy. We live in a different government system. Israel at that time was directly governed by God. So when we look through this list and we look through what to eat and not eat and respect the festivals, new moon, this starts making a little more sense to us as we dive into this. We start to get the culture a little bit more. But what about this word Sabbath? Where does that fit in? It's kind of a catchy word that we hear a lot in our culture today, that we should continue to keep Sabbath. So, so how does that fit in? Is that a moral law or is that a ceremonial law that was a part of the Ten Commandments? In fact, it's repeated all throughout the Old Testament, constantly used. And if you didn't keep the Sabbath, the penalty was and could be death. So this is a pretty significant thing. The word Sabbath actually means this. It means to cease from work. Throughout the Old Testament, God had a law set up to help them understand literally and practically how to Sabbath, how to cease from work. He created a rhythm of life because we were created as his people to work and to rest and to work and to rest. And that principle continues to apply to us today. But what's interesting when you look through the Old Testament and you look through the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment is the only commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus, in his own words in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, said this, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Also in Colossians, it seems like it's sitting right next to these festivals. So let's dig in a little bit more and see the heart of what Paul's saying about this and how Sabbath fits in. Now there's one word that I didn't really focus on in this verse 16 yet. And it's a verse that we can never skip by, a word that we can never skip by. Therefore, right? Whenever you're in scripture and you see therefore, you got to stop and see what it's trying to connect, what it's linking to, because the author is trying to get a conclusion. He's trying to get a point across to us. And so we have to go back and see what point he's carrying on. So let's do just that. 
Colossians chapter 2, we know that at the very beginning, Paul is challenging us to be careful of the empty philosophy, the deceitful philosophies that are out there. And in verse 6, he reminds us that you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You've received that. And then he goes on in, in the next, uh, in verse 10, and he tells them that you've been made complete in him. Your completeness is found now in him. And then he goes on in verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. When you couldn't keep the law, when you kept trying, but you could never measure up, he made you alive. Verse 14 goes on saying, having canceled the certification of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The food festivals the drinks, what you should eat, the Sabbath, these were all issues of an old covenant. Physical ways for people to show their devotion and their dependence on God. But now Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles in Colossae. So do the Gentiles need to start doing these practices to be a Christian? Do do the Jews need to stop doing these? Should they continue? What's he say? says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Something has taken place, and this is an imperative. It's a verb passing unfavorable judgment. No one is to act as your judge. Why? Hebrews 9 drives the point home. Or sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. See what he's saying? Rest here is not physical rest. This is spiritual rest. And the work he's talking about is not your job. It's the work that you continue to try to do to somehow make yourself acceptable to God. He's saying, Jesus has done that for you. What we just went back and looked at in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, it's taking place. Therefore, you don't have to strive to try and gain acceptance. You don't have to try to do something to be in the family. God has done all of that for you so you can rest. In fact, verse 17 goes on to show us what he's talking about, and it links right into this. He said, These things, which we just read in verse 16, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance. It's a Greek word, soma. It means substance or body or reality. The NIV actually translates it, the reality is found in Christ. We see the same word used in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and later on in this chapter 2, verse 19. The substance. He contrasts that with the shadow. In the shadow, there is no substance. There's an outline, a picture of a form, but it's not the real thing. It's kind of like if I remember seeing a deck of cards, and, and there are white cards with a black figure on it. Almost looked like a shadow. You could ask a kid, hey, what, what is this? 
And the kid would say, it's a mailbox, but there's no features on the card. It's just kind of an outline. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It, it's, a, it, it's a mailbox, but it kind of looks more like a shadow of a mailbox, not the essence of what a mailbox is. Or, or, or what's this one? It's a horse, right? If these were actual shadows, like, the shadow's not a horse, but I can see how you would see that that leads to a horse, that would be connected to a horse. It looks like the same shape, right? Or what's this one? It's, it's a really tall guy. Sure, it's just the shadow of the guy. Uh, maybe the sun's setting and he looks really tall, but, but it leads to that. The shadow is not the substance. It leads to something. Maybe this would make it a little more clear. <clears throat> Imagine a kid at the airport, and he's been waiting for his dad to come home. It's been a long time. He's eager, anticipation. And he's at the airport just excited. And minutes go by. All of a sudden, hours are going by. And he's working. Starting to get a little bored, starting to get antsy. It's hard work for kids at an airport, right? All of a sudden, his legs are kicking. He finds himself squirming around the chair and laying on his stomach, looking down at the floor, just thinking, I can't wait till my dad gets here. And all of a sudden, this figure comes on the floor. There's a uh, shape of a head and shoulders, and it's leading outward. And as soon as this kid sees that figure, he jumps off the chair. And what's he do? Jump on the floor to hug that shadow? No. That shadow leads to something. So he gets up and he follows that shadow to his dad that is walking towards him. And he runs and he leaps into his arms. That's the substance. That's the reality. It's found in Christ. These things were to point us to him. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says it this way. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice by which they offer continually, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can't do it. The substance, the one, the body, Jesus, the head, he's the one that has done it. Gresham Mankin said it this way, a low view of the law leads to legalism in religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace beautifully said. What he's saying here is when I think that I can somehow achieve it, I I set a low bar because I can't ever achieve it. So I set up all these rules and regulations that I think I can kind of fulfill. And then I want to get other people to fulfill these same things because somehow I've taken the posture of God. But instead, when I see the holiness of who God is and all the perfection that is found in him, and I look at these laws, I realize there's no way I could ever cut it. And I'm so grateful for his grace. Notice that Paul is not forbidding them from these special days or from these feasts or from Sabbath. He's just making it clear that these things cannot and will not and do not save you. So there's no reason that you should ever force these things on another person or allow another person to force them on you. He goes on to verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worshiping angels and taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And do not hold, and not holding fast to the head from which the entire being is supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Paul's giving another warning here. Another thing for us to look out for. He uses the word defrauding. Maybe 
your, your translation might say disqualifying. It literally means to act as an umpire against you. Paul's setting up this word picture, this athletic metaphor to get his point across, that, that they're being robbed of a prize. So it immediately reminded me of a middle school basketball game I had. We had traveled to a small town, and you could tell there was a ton of hometown pride there. And it was a small gym, and the refs kind of seemed like best friends with, with the other team. And we started up the game, and, and it was just ridiculous. I've never seen such horrible calls in my life. By the time we were at half, over half of our team was in foul trouble, and they didn't have one foul yet. We were trying to like stay 10 foot away from each defender and not even look at them so we didn't get called. That was one of the few games that I got fouled out by the end of it. In fact, we had a lot of guys fouled out, so much so that we were thinking, are we going to have enough guys to actually finish this game? It was horrible. It was like that ref was coming in and making these calls that were stealing the game away from us. And you've seen those games. We've blamed refs for calls and games. They've taken something from a team. But Paul's taken this another step. He's saying it's like this. You're at that very same game, and all of a sudden, somebody from the crowd comes down off the the crowd on the floor, and they brought their own whistle. And they start blowing the whistle, and they're making up their own rules. Before you can score, you got to pass the ball 10 times. You're sitting there going, that's not a part of the rules. Are, are you really a basketball player? Do you want to be in this game? Do you want to try to win? Right? They start making up these other rules. There's three seconds in the lane, both on offense and now defense for you too. And they start blowing their whistle. They start trying to think that they have all the answers, and they're going to start forcing them on you. They're going to try and steal your prize. What prize is he talking about? He's trying to, Paul's trying to say, hey, don't let anybody deny you of your claim to be a Christian. Don't let anybody say, hey, unless you do these things or have these experiences, you're not a Christian. The Colossians were dealing with two sets of people that were coming in, the Gnostic, Gnosticism and uh, ascetism. The Gnostic was a person who considered themselves to have inside information. They had knowledge beyond the ordinary, but beyond what the typical person has, right? And that gave them some kind of a status, something that, of an allure that they could draw other people in. Ascentism was a Greek word meaning to exercise or training or practice. Essentially, it was someone that believed that, that strict self-denial or some sort of practice would bring about this higher spirituality in life. And we're going to see that throughout these next several verses as we finish up the chapter. So what kind of practices are they talking about here? They talk about uh, worship of angels and of visions, but notice first what kind of standard they're, they're putting up. This, this notice uh, or this worship of angels, it, it's set in this self-abasement. Your translation might say delighting in humility. The NIV actually says false humility. Let me just tell you this. If somebody is proud that they're humble, they're probably not humble, it's somebody that's coming in trying to gain something. The thing that they're setting up is for them, but they're coming in in this false sense of humility for it. So we start out with this worship of angels. It's kind of interesting how this phrase is put together. It could be translated two different ways. The first way would be angels as objects of worship. The second way would be worship that the angels are offering. So that second form, if it were translated that way, would be this idea that somebody comes in with this, this knowledge, this insider information that, hey, it's good to worship with your church, but what if you could actually start worshiping with the angels? I know how you can do that. 
Just get my book, it's 1999, right? There's, there's some kind of drawing. There's a way that you could elevate your worship to be worshiping in with the angels. Now, because of what Paul's saying about humility, it's probably the first form, the other form, and that would be that our worship, who am I that I could worship God? I should just worship the angels and they could carry my worship to God. Either way that you look at this, there's nothing biblical about that framework. Somebody has drawn up their own imaginations and they're starting to get maybe a following or they're starting to get some kind of self-satisfaction out of this false notion or these visions. It says he's taking a stand going on and on about something that he can't prove. This, this vision of this thing that he's saying, taking these stands on visions, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. You can go all through YouTube and see these people talking about these visions and everything that they've accomplished, how you can have these too. Now, that's not to say that God hasn't used visions. I'm so grateful that God gave a vision to Peter that the gospel should spread beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. It was a way that God could connect with Peter to get him a message that Peter would understand, a way that Peter could grasp. It's not that God can't do that, but all of a sudden, these guys are starting to say, unless you have this experience, unless you have this vision, are you really a Christian? Can you, can you be sure that you're a Christian if you haven't had this? And it all goes back to their inflation, the flesh, the flesh inflation. I love how the message paraphrases that. There are a lot of hair, hot air, and that's all that they are. There's no substance. It's an empty box. They're just pretending. There's an article that was written in the LA Times about Coach Kerr. Now, I told you I was a child of the 90s. I was a Bulls fan. This isn't Steve Kerr. This is actually Johnny Kerr. And he was going into the game trying to figure out how to really pump up his team. And, and he said this in, in Coach Kerr's words. We had lost seven in a row, and I decided to give a philosophic, uh, psychological pep talk before the game with the Celtics. I told Bob Boozer, go out and pretend that he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Jerry Sloan, that he was the best defensive guard. I told Guy Rogers to pretend that he could run an offense better than any other guard. And I told Muller to pretend that he was the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the game. Well, he goes on to say, we lost the game by 17. And I was pacing around the locker room afterwards, trying to figure out what to say when Mueller walked up and put his arm around me and said, don't worry about it, coach. Just pretend we won. <laughs> you can't manufacture Jesus. Jesus is the substance. He's the real thing. He doesn't need you to try and put some kind of experience together that he needs to fulfill. What he needs you to do is run to him, to follow him, to pursue him. Not the other things that other people put up as standards that you need to accomplish or you need to have or you need to fall. He says, the growth stays by being connected to the head. It's, it's, it's a way that we grow by growing with him, staying connected to him, abiding with him. He is the source of growth. Verse 20 goes on to say, and if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world. Now we talked about that last week, remember? The ABCs of this cultural thinking. I can do it. I can make myself more spiritual. What I have in Christ is good, but it's not good enough. I still need something more. But remember what we have learned in this chapter. You died with Christ. 
The you is now found in him, and he now lives in you. You are complete. You have everything you need. I was born, I was adopted, but it wasn't because of anything I did. It was because of something that was done for me. We are also with Christ because of what he's done for us. It goes on to say, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance to the commandments and teaching of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What's going on here? He starts to give them another list of all these do-nots. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these things you can't do. Some think that he's doubling back to the ceremonial laws. This legalistic system that's been set up now, although there's freedom in Christ. Kind of reminds you of Jesus back in Matthew 7. When all these people were so worked up that Jesus' disciples weren't ceremonially washing their hands before they ate. As Jesus looks around at him, he's saying, okay, these guys are so concerned about this ceremonial action. And yet in their very own homes, they're evading their own responsibility to care for their parents. They're worried about eating this food that somehow would be defiled because they didn't do a ceremonial washing that would go into their bodies. But yet the thing that they need to really be worried about is their heart because the actions they're actually living out are far from Jesus far from his kingdom way of life. In fact, Mark chapter 7, verse 18 says this, do, not, do you not understand whatever goes into man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. He thus declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of a man is what defiles him. Our, the way we live, but it's not formed some kind of standard to give achievement to us for somebody else or for God. If I'm trying to gain that kind of approval, I'm going to be missing it. It's also maybe thought that he was given into pagan ascentism. So there, there was people maybe seeing that if I don't eat these things, if I give away from like these pleasurable things, it would somehow make me more holy. It would show my sacrifice. Or if I would treat my body in these extreme, these horse, horrible, harsh conditions, it would just show my devotion to God. There's nothing biblical about it. If I would just not eat fish on Friday, it would show God's devotion, right? And people have told me I'm not supposed to eat that. So I'm trying to achieve something through it. Or if a Christian should not be at this event, or a Christian should be at this event. Or a Christian should not vote this way. Or a Christian should vote this way. Or a Christian should not dress this way. Or a Christian should dress this way. What's the motivation that I'm operating all these things with? To achieve some kind of status? To gain something by my own fleshly power? He's saying such rules are mere, uh, such rules are mere human teaching that deteriorate as we use them. So I could, I could make up these rules, right? I'm not going to eat steak. I'm sacrificing steak. But what he's saying is steak still has a purchase by product uh, date on it. It's going to still go bad whether you eat it or not. It's not the steak that makes you holy. Because then we start adding other layers. Well, I'm not, also not going to even look at steak. Boy, look at how holy I am. And I'm, 
not going to actually be around people that eat steak. This is the same kind of thinking that went into the monastic thinking that drew people away into these extreme conditions, apart and distant from the world, trying to, on their own, achieve some kind of holiness apart from Christ. That's, Paul's not saying that in our freedom, there are not things that we could do to grow in our discipline and practices that we could use. There's absolutely Bible study methods and prayer exercises and daily habits and apps and all sorts of things that we could use as we grow towards the substance. But if our focus becomes on the shadows, we miss it all. Paul's saying is, am I doing this to try and gain approval and acceptance from God or some person? Or am I doing this because I am free to love and pursue Christ who is the substance of life? It's not about a license to sin. It's not saying you can go do whatever you want. You've got freedom. And also, he's reminding us too, I can be the one that is doing the judgment, that is setting up these standards that other people have to keep. And that makes me think just for a second, are there people in my life that I have put a standard on that there's no way that they can know Christ or that Christ could accept them because of this? I'm now in the same boat. A Christian has to continue to lean and follow Jesus, and he's going to get practical. We're going to get into chapter 3. But for now, he wants us to understand who it is that we have our identity in and how we know that we are a Christian. It's a chance to remember the Bible is not a behavior novel with a list of what to do and what not to do to make God happy. It's a story of God's plan and redemptive desire for us to be with him. We're going to talk more, and this book will move on to practical things, but don't miss that. The Bible is not a story about these lists of to-dos and not-to-dos to make God happy. The Bible is a story of God's redemptive plan and desire for us to be with him because of everything he's done. So I got to ask you this morning, where do you sit in this spot? Why are you trying to do something to somehow gain others' approval or to gain God's approval? Why is it that you're setting up standards for others that God himself has not set up? Is it that you're trying to prove your worth? Let me remind you of this. You were sought out and chosen by the supreme king of the universe. He came after you. Is it somehow to gain God's approval? Colossians has reminded us that he justified you, and he told you that in Christ you have been made complete, not might be or will be or should be. You have been made complete. Are you getting that? Do you see that? The fullness of Christ is there for you. Is it to gain someone else's approval? Paul is specific about that in this chapter, isn't he? Don't let anybody else judge you. Don't let anybody else disqualify you from your standing with God. Are you trying to prove something to yourself that, you're, that you are good enough? Let me remind you of this. We are more sinful and broken than we will ever fully realize. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> Glad I came to church this morning to hear that. 
Already this week, all week I've been thinking, I'm not good enough. I've never been good enough, and I will never be good enough. Let me say it again. You are more sinful and broken than you will ever even realize. But it doesn't stop there. Because of Jesus and his work. Get that, his work, not your work, his work. You are more chosen, more accepted, more adopted, more complete than you will ever fully understand. And you have the fullness of Christ in you. It's true. It's true last week when you thought you weren't good enough and you'd messed up again. It's going to be true this week when those doubts come into your head saying you're not good enough. There's still something more you need to do. It's true when someone comes alongside and says, hey, if you were a true Christian, you would be doing this. So for some of us in this room, we need to know, hey, Josh, I've heard this. I know that accept it, receive it. There are some in this room that are continuing to somehow try to gain God's approval through something you can do. This morning is the morning to say, Jesus, I accept your approval because of what you've done. And I know that I will never do enough to gain a status with you. It's all because of you. So church, stop striving for acceptance. But don't stop striving, pursuing, running after the one true substance in life, Jesus. God, thank you for messages that just remind us of your incredible grace, the work that you've done in our life, and the way that we continue to walk and grow in you is not still through what we do. Why is it that so often we come before you and we say, God, there's nothing I could do to ever gain your acceptance or favor. It's only by what you've done. We accept you as our Savior, and yet from there we say, I got this. I can do it from here. God, help us to continue to cling to you, our head. Help us to continue to run after you and not somebody else's ideas or notions or standards. God, we want our eyes focused on you. This week, remind us that we are yours fully complete, fully adopted in your family. And let us walk in the joy and goodness of that with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.